Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme, on a cool and cloudy autumn day here in the capital, it must be said, is Jamie McGowan. Jamie is the CEO at Welsh Ice, an organisation specialised in business incubation, business advice, business support, training and mentorship. Uh, Jamie, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Hello, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. And hello from a, a, a rainy but the sun's peeking through the cloud, Cassilli. Well, that is slightly happening here as well. It started out quite nice this morning. The clouds have just sort of billowed over the capital and we're starting to see a little bit of sun poking through in places. So fingers crossed it'll be a much nicer day for it over the uh, the next few hours. But we are getting the dark nights rolling in. So by the time it probably comes out to play, it's probably going to be sunset. So um, I don't know which way we're going to go with that. But um, normally at this point um, in the show, um, we dive straight into the subject of leadership, which is what our podcast is all about and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate we approach the topic from that angle because for so many leaders within all walks of life, this pandemic has been an incredible challenge. So for yourselves, Jamie, of course, with immense experience working with businesses, um, how has it affected you and your operations? Well, I think like everyone, it's been, it's been huge. It's probably certainly been the biggest challenge that we've experienced since we've been open. Um, our um, our business model is based around our campus for enterprise in Cassilli. So we've got 30,000 square foot of space where we invite entrepreneurs to come and come and work, grow and learn in, in the Sestop startup journey. Um, of course, lockdown meant we could not use the space anymore. Um, so we had to sort of lock the doors and not allow anyone in. Um, and a big part of what we do is building community. Um, so bringing people together so they're not isolated in their back bedrooms or their, or their dining tables trying to grow their business. So, Immediately, our sort of biggest USP was taken away from us, um, you know, practically overnight. Um, so what we what we really had to do, like like a lot of people in, across the UK, was I wouldn't say pivot and not change our business completely, but look at what our business does really well and see how we can get that to people digitally. Um, so what we do really well is build community, is to is to build peer to peer networks of entrepreneurs, and to sort of teach and, 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 and train and help people learn all the skills it is to kind of start their own little thing. Um, we've got an incredible team here. We've got a, a, a fantastic team and, and really quickly being a small business, we could be really agile and we could really quickly introduce a completely digital um, um, sort of scheme, um, which people really resonated with. Um, I think that's something that, that pleasantly surprised us. We were worried that our community of entrepreneurs would look at us and go, well, if I can't come into the building, I'm not going to get involved. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I think we saw a, a real sort of increase in engagement with online activity. We saw more people at workshops. We more, saw more collaboration. Um, and I think really people who were isolated from their own homes during lockdown, it really struck a chord what we were trying to do, um, trying to kind of get people to connect with each other and, and, and to keep on learning. So, yeah, it's been, a ho- it's been horrible. You know, there's no line. It's been horrible. It's been a challenge. But, mm. but I've been really impressed by the resilience of not only my team, but the community of entrepreneurs that we work with, each and every one of them has had their own challenge and, and, and they've really sort of looked at different approaches, 
they've, they've looked at different revenue streams and there's been a real um, sense of resilience around our community. There's been so much encouraging um, adaptability and innovation during this time, hasn't there? And collaboration as well on an unprecedented scale. So many businesses are talking to each other that would normally be in competition because they are ultimately in the same boat and they're helping each other through. And we're seeing some real, real positives as a uh, result of that. So much resilience, as you were uh, say there. And so many business leaders are also using this opportunity to embrace as a learning curve as well, because ultimately, for many businesses, it's like going back to basics, isn't it? It's like, their first days back in business they're having to go back and change everything try and come up with new revenue streams and it's been very much trial and error which is ultimately sometimes what business is all about trial and error learning as you go along absolutely i mean it felt like day one really in some cases because we we often kind of encourage our entrepreneurs to to act like engineers to sort of take their business idea pull it apart uh, and then put it back together again and see what it looks like. Um, and often, you know, you don't really take the time to do that and look at your business model and see what's broken. This pandemic has forced people to do that. Um, you know, this has forced people to sit down, look at their business, pull it apart and put it back together in, in a new way, um, which has a lot of the entrepreneurs that we speak to has really kind of put a different angle on what they're doing and, and opened up different opportunities. Um, but definitely, Scott, you're absolutely right. The collaboration piece is something that perhaps because everyone is suffering from this, because it's affecting everyone, those sort of barriers of competition have perhaps come down a little bit more uh, and communities are coming together uh, to collaborate on projects so that when we come out at the end of this, um, we're all going to be better off for it. Exactly right. It's all about seizing on the opportunities and using this as, an, as a chance to develop and improve. Absolutely right. Um, however, even though, of course, we are approaching the, this very, very positively in the, uh, the business world, with the impact that the pandemic is going to have in the long term, even when we do have a working vaccine um, and the virus itself is no longer a tangible risk to our health, just because of the sort of lingering anxiety that this will cause and also the effect it will have on consumer confidence, especially in some sectors, people um, being reluctant to go out and go into venues and do things. Do you think that there'll still be some kind of COVID hangover for some time to come yet that business is going to have to weather? A hundred percent. Yeah, unfortunately, I think so. If I look at, look at my business here in Kisili, I mean, like I said, at the top of the conversation, we've spent eight years convincing people not to work from home, right? Uh, we've been trying to say to people, it's isolating, it's unproductive, you don't meet people, you've got to come and um, work in a co-working space, an enterprise hub to really make connections and really make the most out of your time. Now, people can't do that anymore. And, you know, we're not encouraging people to break the rules. Um, so we're having to find ways as a business ourselves to to um, engage with our customers in different ways. Once we come out of the back end of COVID, I think that people are still, you're absolutely right, people are not going to want to come into offices. Um, and in some cases, rightly so. You know, there's some interesting research out there about the, um, the positive impact on the environment that we're having by not commuting as much, the positive uh, impact on people's health, of being able to sort of cook their own meals and to, and to go out for regular walks. So I think people are going to have lots of positive change in their lives. And I think that the business community is going to have to react to that and not go back to old ways. Um, we're certainly not. Um, we're looking at our entire offering and looking at different ways to be even more flexible than what we are. And I think every business across the UK is really going to have to realize that this, this kind of phrase that's used a lot now, the new normal, is a thing. Um, normal is completely different now. And I think businesses are definitely going to have to adapt to survive.
Exactly. And one of those big changes that could come, um, of course, centred around our working practices, will there be a fully fledged return to the office as we knew it before? Or are more people going to be working from home on a personal basis? Um, From your point of view, um, when it comes to working remotely, what are some of the big challenges that you've had to sort of get around with regards to leading from a distance in that sense? Yeah, I think I think from, from two perspectives. So, you know, I lead I lead a team here who who support our entrepreneurs um who are based in our community. But also, you know, from even further distance, I sort of lead the community here, our, our community of entrepreneurs and we have we have over five hundred here look up to us for sort of um guidance and positivity um and sort of encouragement, which is something that we've all been really good at. Doing that remotely is obviously very difficult. Um there's loads of technology and tools out there that you can use. But I think what the team here and the community here has really missed that sort of physical um, seeing someone in a corridor and having those sort of irreverent chats that aren't work-related. I think that living in this Zoom world, you log on to a Zoom call or a phone call and you've got an hour booked and you use an hour to work. And then that Zoom call finishes and you're straight into the next meeting where you spend an hour working. In the sort of pre-COVID world, there'd be a lot of time, the water cooler chats, you know, the the games of ping pong, the, Mm. the, the kind of catching up for a coffee which doesn't seem to exist anymore. We seem to have completely lost that now that we're all working from home. So I think that when we come out of that, I think, I think that people are going to be looking for a blend. I think people are going to be yes. craving that, um, you know, that sort of the fun element of it, you know, the, the, the bake sales in the office and the, the five-a-side football and the, and the gaming competitions. They're going to be craving that. But at the same time, it's, they're going to be wanting to keep and sort of retain an element of the freedom that working from home offers and, and, mm. and the mental health um, positives and, 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 you know, the family work-life balance, which is much improved from work from home. Mm. So I think we're going to have a, well, I think we're going to have a balance when, when we finally go back. Um, but I, definitely, I think that, and, and I think a lot of people will probably have this, that the, the human interaction that's non-work related is, is really affecting people at the moment. That's exactly the thing, because there are mental health benefits on both sides, both in the working from home elements and also having a communal workplace because of that human interaction, which I think certainly pre-COVID we did take for granted quite substantially. And um, just with regards to sort of mental health as a whole, just how important do you see that issue being within leadership, both in terms of safeguarding that of the people around you as a leader, but also your own as well? Because it is a lonely place at the top and this COVID-19 pandemic has certainly sort of brought that to light too. It's absolutely huge. And I think that um, one thing that perhaps has caught a lot of leaders by surprise is, is the effect that this pandemic is having on their teams and communities, mental health. Um, we have um, introduced a lot of stuff into our team to allow them more flexibility with working, to work hours that more suit them, to take longer breaks, to kind of help them. But I think that the, the point you're making there, Scott, is, is absolutely correct. It's quite hard for a leader to look at themselves quite often and you'll, you'll put a lot of things in for your team but you'll find that you're not spending any time to sort of look after number one. Um, I'm quite lucky here in my businesses that I've got um, an incredible team who are really receptive and really helpful. And, and actually, they, 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 they look through the, um, the sort of window and, and see that I'm struggling a little bit. They'll pick me up and, and make sure that I'm looking after my mental health and making sure that I'm taking regular breaks and that I'm sort of engaged in activities that isn't work-related. And I think that comes from sort of building a community first. Mm. Um, I think I've used that word to death in this podcast, but it's something that we're really passionate about. And, and community goes beyond work. It goes beyond, you know, targets and, 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 and the P&L. It's something that goes much deeper. And I think that once you start opening up your teams to that, yeah, the sort of mental health stuff becomes a lot easier to deal with. Mm. 
completely understand where you're coming from uh, there, Jamie. That sort of community culture is so, so, so important. And just um, with regards to reaching out to people out there, there are so many youngsters, especially, that will probably be tuning in and listening to this podcast episode and are maybe downhearted about the impact of COVID on the economy and what that's doing to their employment prospects. So as a business leader yourself, what message would you give to those young people to really get them to pick up their heads and embark on that road to success during this quite trying time? For, for me, a, a big thing is about finding your your, your tribe, finding your wolf pack. Um, people at the moment are, are more isolated than what they've ever been. Um, it's weird, right? We're, we're more connected now. We've got social media and we can talk to, to friends and family via Zoom uh, and we can, we can talk to people via social media. But I get the feeling that we're a lot more isolated in a day-to-day basis. Um, and I think that finding people who have got shared passions and shared values and shared objectives um, is really important. Also, finding people who are good at things that you're not um, and embracing them is, is really important. Um, it's a lot about what we do here in this business is kind of try and connect people who are perhaps working on an idea on their own and banging their head against a brick wall. To speak to someone who isn't a business advisor, who isn't you know a peer, is someone from a completely different walk of life and learning from them because you can never stop learning. Um, so it's all about kind of, for me, not kind of hiding and shirking back and, and, and introvert. It's about getting out there, meeting different people and building a sort of network of people around you that's really going to push you forward. I think, I think that spending your time with cool people and people that inspire you and always being with people who are, you can learn from is a really sort of good step to take in life. It certainly is, Jamie, and I think that's very sound advice indeed. Now, I am conscious that our time on the show today is starting to draw to its close. So just before we do wrap things up, I would certainly like to talk about the future because we know that over the course of the next year or so, at least for a good chunk of it, we're going to have to keep persisting with this new normal and adhering to COVID-19 restrictions. But over this period of time, we should hopefully, fingers crossed, also have a working vaccine in place and can start to focus on the challenges of the long-term future and what the COVID-19 hangover is likely to look like. So with all of that in mind, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Welsh Ice over the next year? And indeed, where do you see yourselves this time in 12 months? That's a big question, right? And um, it's really difficult to answer in in this sort of pandemic. I think first and foremost, we as an organisation, we've got to remain flexible. Um, we've because we're a small team, um, we've been able to be quite agile over the last sort of six months and introduce and change and adapt really quickly. And I think we need to keep that ethos and remain flexible. Um, but for me, our sort of core objective of bringing people together. Um, still needs to be our main focus. Um, people are, I mean, this is going to be a really long winter, right? And people are going to be more and more isolated and feeling more and more sort of disconnected from communities they're a part of. I think that ICE has got a, a, a role to bring people together. Now, we can't do that physically at the moment, so we need to look at other ways of doing it uh, online mainly. Um, but I think for us, we need to make sure that we're not just kind of bringing people together for a business meeting, you know, or for a networking event. We need to make sure that there's inter- interactions happening that are beyond that, that are more about the human element. Um, so I think, yeah, we, we, we've got to focus on, on, on keeping things online. We've got to focus on building communities. But I think more importantly, we've got to stay positive. Um, you know, we work with, with, at the moment, 500 or so startups. The minute that we um, sort of duck behind the curtain and, and don't seem positive, um, it gives them an opportunity to doubt what they're working on. Um, we've got to remain positive and sort of encourage the businesses that we work with that there is another way. Uh, and that we're going to get through this and sort of lead by example in that sense. Um, It's going to be tricky. You know, it's going to be a hard 12 months, but I'm certainly excited by some of the opportunities that are out there. 
Um, and, you know, if, if, if this business can get through this and survive and come out the other end stronger, it's a real great recognition for our team and our community. It is going to be a challenging time, but business has to just get its head down and get through this. And I love the scale of the ambition that you have there and how just determined and how optimistic you are, Jamie. It's so, so infectious. And I genuinely think just given how enlightening it's been having you join us today, that we should definitely catch up at some point in the next year and welcome you back onto the show just to see how some of those plans are starting to come along. I'd be delighted. It'd be great, yeah. It would be fantastic to do that, Jamie. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the programme today. It's been a real, real pleasure for us having you. And uh, most importantly as well, until we do touch base again in future, hopefully, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on because we're not quite out of the woods with this one yet. So let's just keep our fingers crossed. The trajectory is going to be positive from here. And that well wish goes to everybody associated with Welsh Ice as well. You too. Thank you so much, Scott. Really appreciate it. I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of other people because it makes such a key difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Jamie McGowan, CEO of Welsh Ice, onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show, we're going to be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup Patrick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, during an illustrious football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional goals for the likes of West West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But of course, he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup. I'm sure some of you need no reminding that that came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. So Jeff will be coming onto the programme to reflect on some of the highlights of his career, talking about the importance of robust leadership throughout, as well as leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS who have been doing all they can during this very difficult time that is coming up next and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in sir jeff hurst who joins us on the program today um sir jeff good morning good morning how are you very good thank you it certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it isn't it it is the weather's pretty good at the moment i hope may, may it last Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I I'm want England to be successful I, I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything in, in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want wanting to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, 
do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner, England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people, um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans-Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. 
But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and, and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed 
the discipline point of view because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching and management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's just three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. 
And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbor's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, well, you were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to it we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, And what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I have one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egbert in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I've got a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, 
the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front, and that was it. And from a standing start. I think my first season around, I think, September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a 
and of course over the years hopefully that that has uh, come out that's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A he saw when I was at West Ham and B obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City so I was I was initially first fairly surprised I think it's <laughs> and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that and if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight, and uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me. What he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was. He is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across, the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I, was, I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, 
just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever. It sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career, and I think I, I went into business for twenty years. And I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.